Last week, uh, Jared taught through Psalm 8, focusing our attention on what racial and ethnic harmony looks like, specifically as Americans, uh, in light of the gospel. Uh, And then this week, we're going to be examining another uh, cultural issue of uh, the sanctity of human life. Um, Racial reconciliation and the sanctity of human life are are two cultural issues which cause us as Christians to carefully examine um, how our culture has influenced uh, our thinking, our politics, deeply held convictions, uh, and the ways that we approach scripture. And so the thinking behind us preaching sermons on these two topics comes from a desire to address these topics that have been utilized by uh, political parties as major dividing issues. So both of these uh, subjects have been uh, used by politicians as talking points uh, and come with a lot of emotionally charged arguments. And so it's with that in mind that we want to engage these issues uh, because we believe that scripture has a lot to say on this and that as believers, uh, this should be more of a unifier for us than a dividing line in the sand, um, which it has been. And so uh, the issues of racial reconciliation and the sanctity of human life um, are really dealing with the exact same theological issue. And that is our understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. The imago Dei, it's the fancy theological word for it, being made in the image of God. And so as I've thought through uh, this sermon, this topic specifically this week, uh, several things have come to my mind on the sanctity of human life. Uh, The first is that this sermon series on addressing the sanctity of human life came as a response to the court's decision in Roe versus Wade that legalized abortion. And, and so this was a sermon that came out of that. And so with that decision being overturned, um, theoretically, uh, abortion is illegal throughout the United States. And so that being said, what's the point of preaching a sermon on the sanctity of human life, right? We won, it's over, it's done. Um, but if abortion were the single issue, then asking the, that question might be the right thing to ask, but it led me to then also question Uh, What type of culture is needed in order for racial hatred, abortion, hatred and violence towards minority groups, and an intolerance of beliefs that are different from our own? What kind of culture is needed for that kind of thing to flourish? Um, And I believe that the answer to that question is that all it takes is for a culture to not value and see the dignity of human life. That's it. And so we desperately need, as the Crossing Church this morning, we desperately need to see our own blindness to the ways that we ignore the Imago Dei, the image of God in other human beings. We desperately need to grow in our our understanding of how precious it is for humanity to be made in the image of God. Which brings us to Psalm 139. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and say this from the get-go because... I don't want you to think I'm a coward. (laughs) Um, We are going to only look at verses 1 through 18, um, not because the whole psalm is not important, but because we're focusing on a topic of sanctity of human life and not this psalm. And so I'm going to read 1 through 18. I'm not going to address verses 19 through 24, which which I really wrestled with uh, this week because they're hard 
topics, but there's beautiful ways to interpret this and to, um, I'm just, I'm just gonna say that's, that's a conversation we can have if you really wanna get into that, but just don't think that I'm not being faithful to the Psalm, because you'll see. Um, <clears throat> anyway, Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty and I'm unable to to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will, bring, will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. When we approach the Psalms, when we read these, uh, these songs and poems, it's important for us to keep in mind that this is Hebrew poetry. Poetry in general is not a genre of literature that uh, most Americans are super familiar with, um, especially when it comes to reading poetry critically uh, to understand meaning. We like things to be very literal and, and fact right in front of us. Uh, the Bible was written by an Eastern culture that held traditions and norms that were very different from the way that you and I live. And so when we read scripture, we often read it through the lens of our own Western thinking. It's not, that's not a good or bad thing, that just is what it is. And so I bring that up because um, this is a very well-known psalm that is often referred to as a defense of the life of the unborn specifically verses 13 through uh, 16. But if we're going to be faithful readers of the scripture, we have to acknowledge that this was not the intent of the psalmist at all. David's intention in this psalm is to illustrate and praise the character and nature of Yahweh, God. And it's through understanding of God's character that we, we then make that cultural application to the issue that we're talking about today. So that, that's, a, that's an important way that when we read scripture, we have to keep the context and culture in mind. So looking at Psalm 139, this first section here, I want us to pay attention um, to 
verses 1 through 6, and then 7 through 12 in those categories. And so in, these, in this section, 1 through 6, uh, there are two important truths about the character and nature of God. Um, 1 through 6 is the first um, that highlights God's omniscience, which is his all-knowingness. He knows everything. So notice uh, in those verses that David says there is no word or deed uh, that, that goes unnoticed by God. He says in verse 6, this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty, and I'm unable to reach it. God is aware of every word on our, on our tongue, on David's tongue when he's writing this, where he travels, when he gets up, when he lies down. And we get this picture of a God who is aware. He, he understands what's going on. And this thought for David is what leads him to that, that last statement that's beyond comprehension, that David can't wrap his head around the fact that God is aware of him, that the loving God of all creation would take notice of what's going on. And so this echoes what we saw last week in Psalm 8 that Jared preached that says, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you would look after him? So for us, to begin understanding the significance of God's fingerprints on humanity, we have to begin with wonder and awe at God's intimate involvement in our lives. So that's, that's the first category, God's omniscience. His character plugs him into our individual daily lives in a way that is intimate and knowing. The next section, verses 7 through 12, uh, show God's omnipresence or his all-presentness, like he's, he's, there's nowhere that he's not. We sang, we sang these exact words a second ago, omniscient, all-knowing, count not their sum, that was the last one, anyway. Um, but David says in this, in this uh, section, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David uses metaphors here in this section to um, demonstrate that there's not a single place that he can go to hide from the presence of God. This immediately makes me think of Jonah running, fleeing from the presence of the Lord to uh, Tarshish, Tarshish, uh, away from Nineveh. But there was nowhere for him to hide. There's nowhere for us to hide from the presence of God. David continues to say here that even the darkness is not dark to you. Surely the darkness will hide me, he says, but the darkness and the light are alike to him. So not only does God know everything and see everything, but he's present in everything. Just take a minute to ponder that reality. Like clo really close your eyes and think about these things. Consider that God knows everything about me. How does that make you feel? Does it bring comfort or does it terrify you? Are you, indif are you indifferent towards it? Try not to make any meaning of that, but just notice that in yourself. Consider that God sees everything that I do. He knows it, he sees it. Consider also that God knows and sees everything 
but he's present as well. He's with you. He's with me. There's never a point where you are alone. Ever. It's from these characteristics of God that he is creating humanity. His all-knowingness, his all-presentness. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates humans, man and woman, knowing fully that he's going to have to be intimately involved in their lives. We saw last week that when God created humanity, he created them as the pinnacle of his creation, the highest point. There is nothing on earth that is more precious to God than man. Human, humankind is the pinnacle of his creation. And God knew that when he created you, that you were not going to be perfect. He knew that when he created you as an individual person, that you were going to fall short of his glory. And still we see that his loving, compassionate hand has formed you. Every aspect of who you are and your personality and your nature, God knows it. He loves it. He cherishes it. And these verses show us that God is not only involved in what can be seen and felt and touched, but in what is invisible and unseen. Look at verses 13 through 18. David begins here to comment about his own creation, marveling at the creativity and the handiwork of God. This passage is so familiar to most of us and it connects to the previous verses by showing us that God's all-presentness, his, his all-seeing nature, it's through those characteristics that he creates humanity. It's likely that David has been meditating uh, on Genesis 127, which says that God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And then from this understanding and meditation of, on God's word, he cries out, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I like how the CSB translates it, that I'm remarkably and wonderfully made. You as an individual are remarkable and wonderfully made. How precious are your thoughts towards me? How vast they're some. If I counted them, they would outweigh, outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. God has created us in his very image. And I mentioned earlier that the goal of Psalm 139 is not to create a defense of the life of the unborn child. That's not the goal. That's not the purpose. However, it is completely appropriate to read this passage in light of all that we know about God and other scriptures and, the, and see the handiwork and nature of God in the creation and development of babies. It's completely appropriate to do that. That's not, that's, that's good. We should do those things. And it's at that, that point that most people who believe this doctrine deeply would say yes and amen, nothing more needs to be said. But it's also at this specific point that people who have issues with the Christian teaching on the sanctity of human life, specifically the, the, 
the idea of uh, life beginning at conception. This is where they have issue with this teaching and then raise up an alarm. We can't escape the tie, the political tie that this issue has in our culture. There is a rich history of the influence of politics and shaping and leveraging this specific issue for political gain. And it's because of that that Christians must continue to examine this teaching. It has been a heavy critique on American Christianity that claims that we only care about the life of an unborn child and nothing else. Once that child's born, we ignore it. We have heard that. And I believe there's some validity to it, enough to pay attention to what these people are saying. If you look at the state of things, and so in general, it's a very general statement, Christians in America have claimed the moral high ground because of our stance on abortion and failed to uphold and dignify the image of God and humanity from conception to death, the entirety of a person's life. Our entrenched sense of independence as Americans shapes our actions and motivates more deeply than we realize. Once that person's born, it is all on them. But what would our lives look like if we saw a human being the way that God sees them? And so it's at this point that I want to shift because this psalm beautifully gives us the, 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 the character and nature of God that, that we're able to build off of to see what it would look like in light of the gospel to live this way. And so turn, uh, if you will, to Luke 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I believe that it beautifully illustrates what understanding the image of God and humanity will lead a person to do, okay? So uh, starting in verse 25, it says, then an expert in the law stood up to test him, to test Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go, happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged, bandaged his wounds pouring on olive oil and wine, then put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three 
do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. The expert here, expert in the law, reveals in this passage uh, that he isn't much of an expert at all. It also reveals that we can know a lot about the word of God and miss the point entirely. Jesus tells the expert here that he should love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his neighbor as himself, and that this is what will bring him life. This is the essence of all the teachings of the the Bible. And to illustrate what loving your neighbor as yourself or seeing the sanctity of human life, to illustrate what that looks like, Jesus gives this parable. And in order for us to to understand and truly value life, I I see three, three things in this parable that must be true of us if we're gonna truly say, I value human life. First, we must bear witness to the suffering of others. We must look on it. We must see it. But then, number two, we must have compassion for them. And then that compassion should lead us to step into their hurt with them. Why do I say that? Why are those the three things that come up? Because within this parable, we see that the man that has been robbed and left for dead was seen by three people. Two of them, the priest and the Levite, were people who who would say that they intimately followed God. They knew the word of God. They loved him. They went and saw this man, but made the choice to look away. We as a culture are inundated with images of violence and hurt and brokenness. And some of us, it's just entertainment. I I had a professor talk about how um, in her apartment complex in Seattle, she walked out on her balcony and a person had been hit by a car on the road. And all these ambulance and everything were around and she just sat out there and watched. And she she brought this up in the class because what she realized was that in watching this person who had been hit by a car, she just was watching for the enjoyment of what was happening. It was interesting, but had no feeling of sorrow for the person that was struck by a car. And, and that really stood out to me because that, that really defines us as a culture. We do that so readily. These religious men chose to see the suffering of a person and walk away. It's the Samaritan, the one that was hated by the Jew, that witnessed the suffering of the man, had compassion on him, and went above and beyond to make sure that he was taken care of, that he was healed, he was restored, he wasn't just bandaged up and sent on his way. He put him on his, on his animal and brought him in and, and did not spare any expense to make sure that he was healed. This is what would look like if, if we were to really see this in everyone. 
Jesus is telling us, like he told this man, to go and do the same. But our Savior does not tell us this story to motivate us. Because what we, what we see and what we come to find out as we continue to read the gospel is that the Samaritan in this story is our Savior. He is the one that stepped in and bore witness to the suffering of humanity, was moved by compassion to action. Jesus who Philippians tells us existed in the form of God and did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Witness the hurting and suffering of humanity brought about by sin. And being motivated by compassion, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus stepped into our sorrow and covered the cost that would have been ours to pay so that we could be healed. You are children of this God. If you have put your faith in in Jesus, you have experienced this kind of healing love. And so we are able, as the children of God, to live a life wholly different from the, the life that the world tells us to live because you have known the love of Christ. Your life can be radically transformed by this love to act in the same way. It's not impossible for us to do because the Spirit of God is alive and moving and living in us. John tells us that we love because he first loved us. Jesus is our model of love, not a feeling that we have, not a celebrity or politician or even some preacher's word or example. Jesus is the standard. And we can live this kind of life because he tells us that he's sending us a helper. He has sent it. Not so that we could just wait around for when he returns for all this to be made right, but so that we could be transformed from the inside out and live this kind of life. Live a life that honors and dignifies the existence of every human being, regardless of their, their views on politics, regardless of their sexual identity, regardless of any of those things. We, as God's children, because we have received the love of Jesus, are able to honor them and cherish them and love them. That, that is what it would look like for us to truly care about the image of God in every individual life from conception to death. That no one that we interact with would walk away not feeling loved. Jesus points us to this reality and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We're going to take a minute uh, to do, take communion. Um, and we do this every week as a, as a reminder of, of what it is that Christ has done. His death on the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out, points us 
over and over and over and over again to our neediness. Because if we're honest, loving people this kind of way is really hard. And in our own strength, we can't do it. Jesus' body and blood was spilt so that we might be healed and restored, forgiven, and so that we might live a life that says, Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It brings me, it brings me to tears to think about what our community would look like if people knew they were loved like this. And so uh, we're going to take a minute. Uh, when you're ready, uh, come. There's a table in the front and the back. Get your juice, get the, the bread, and return to your seat. And uh, we will take communion together. Um, but I'm going to pray. And then as, as you are able, uh, or as you feel led, come up. Heavenly Father, your love humanity really is so lofty and beyond comprehension. That you would see us in our, our neediness and our brokenness and sin and choose to step into it. That you'd be moved by compassion to heal us. And we have been forgiven much, and so we can love much. Would you do that in us and through us as we continue uh, to grow day by day from one degree of glory to another? Help us to continue to worship you, to sing your praise, to lift our hearts. We love you.